Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The first dead body I think I saw was my grandfather's, who died of colon cancer when I was six or seven. I say I think I saw because I don't even remember the year exactly, and I don't remember if I saw into the casket. I don't think I cried, though. We weren't especially close. The first dead body I saw that I loved was my family dog's, who died of brevecto poisoning in my arms. It was the only time I've seen my father cry. But I've never seen a dead person that I loved. And after reading Haley Campbell's new book, I'm convinced the first dead person I see shouldn't be someone I love. That's what a funeral director, Poppy, tells Campbell in their conversation, one of a dozen or so interviews with death workers that Campbell conducted for her book, All the Living and the Dead. The subtitle mentions embalmers and executioners, but Campbell talks to so many more people than that. Crime scene cleaners and mass fatality investigators and bereavement midwives. People who do work that I either forgot existed or didn't know existed at all. Because in Western society, we brush death under the rug instead of pulling it out into the open. We fear it instead of facing it head on. Haley Campbell is an author, broadcaster, and journalist joining us from her home in London to talk about the people who do the work of death every day. Thanks for chatting with me, Haley. Thank you for having me. You opened the book talking about how you were kind of a morbid child, preoccupied with death. What made you want to write this book now when death has been something you've thought about your whole life? Well, I think as a journalist, I've spent years kind of working around the edges of this book. Um, everything I've written about has in some way been about death or loss. If it, you know, I, I wrote about boxing for a long time. and I, I just felt like exploiting this thing that had always been a big question in my mind. And like you say, it, it, it has been since I was a kid. And I don't think that I am that unusual. People treat it like it's unusual, that children shouldn't be interested in death. But I think death is inherently fascinating. And I think also, if you tell a child that something is secret and that they shouldn't ask questions about it, that just compounds the fascination. And I wanted to know everything. And the more that no one would tell me what I wanted to know, the more questions I had. So really, this book is just you know, exploiting my position to, to answer questions I've had hanging around since I was tiny. Yeah. I mean, you say in your introduction that you had this kind of false sense of security that you could go into the book as a journalist with a sense of detachment, but that you you were desperately wrong about that. And that by the end of the process, you did really grasp real death and what that was like. And I admit when I read that into the introduction before I finished the book, I kind of scoffed. I was like, OK, sure. <laughs> but <laughs> but by the end, I, I even though I don't physically get it and I don't think I will until I see really a, a dead human body, I I get it abstractly, um, not in my bones, but in, in my head. Can you talk more ab about that? What changed for you? Yeah, well, it's like back to boxing again. I think it was Mike Tyson who said, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And um, you really don't know how you're going to react until you get in the room. And my problem with how we treat death is we assume how people will react and, and what it will do to them to see a dead person. And, and most people assume that it will be bad. 
and that you won't be able to handle whatever it is is in that room. And I didn't know how I was going to react, so I was interested to see. And the first dead body I saw was at Poppy's mortuary, and she's the funeral director who said the first dead body you see shouldn't be someone you love. And the fact that she gave me this opportunity to not only see a dead body, but to help dress him for his funeral was a, a genuinely life-changing experience. And I've now become kind of evangelical about telling people when their people die, be there for them. Because it you really can't explain it. And I've tried to in the book. Um, but even so, even though I had seen that dead body, I was not prepared for all dead bodies. And it wasn't until I went to the autopsy room and I saw a dead baby um, that it was really something unexpected. I think when I was thinking about dead bodies, I had prepared myself for adults. Um, you don't expect to see dead children. And even though I had been told before I went into the autopsy room, this is a pediatric pathology department, it is possible you may see dead children. I still thought, you know, I had this kind of bravado um, that I could handle anything. And it's true I can handle more than some people, probably. Lara, who did the autopsies, she handed me a human brain after she had taken it out of the man's skull. And I just thought that was, it was special. It was science. It was biology. I just wasn't prepared for, the dead baby was understandable. I could see it out of the corner of my eye when the pathologist was taking it apart. And it was interesting in a scientific way, but it wasn't until I saw the baby all stitched up and just looking like a baby in a tub with bubbles around his shoulders that it really hit home that this was a dead baby because he was sinking and his face was going under the water. And I thought, I can't save you. And it was, so, it really took the wind out of me. And it took a long time to figure out why that was. But I think it really was the fact that it was unexpected life where I had expected death. I had prepared myself for death. And this is something that a lot of the death workers told me. You need to prepare people for what they're going to see. And if they are prepared and they are not surprised or shocked by what they see, obviously they'll be emotional, but if they're not shocked, then you have done your job as a funeral director or the guy who's in charge of the mass fatality. You know, he has to prepare people for seeing horrible things because some people do want to see it and they should be given every right to see what they want to see, but you have to prepare them. I don't think I would have fully understood that if I hadn't seen this baby. Yeah, I mean, that that whole chapter was incredibly moving. Um, and it was also surprising because this was a job I had not really considered before, an anatomical pathology technologist. I had to write it out for myself because I was like, <laughs> I watch a ton of crime shows and I had never <laughs> thought of this person. Um, I think you're right. We're, we're not prepared for death. And it does it does seem like something we don't really think about. So how do you get into this work if that's sort of the general layout of society? Each of them had different reasons for why they'd got into their job. But the ones who had a lot to say on the subject of death and how we treat it had all got into it because they had seen something in their own lives that they thought they could do better. You know, they could make the situation better in some way. They had been the family of the dead person. They had seen 
the funeral done badly or they had been treated badly in some way and they thought they could save other people from experiencing what they did. The most hidden person to me, because I've always been interested in these jobs, so there were, you know, like the anatomical pathology technologist was, was not news to me, but the one that I found that I hadn't even thought of and discovering her made me feel stupid, because of course they exist, is the bereavement midwife. She's a, a midwife who delivers babies who are already dead or who aren't going to live for very long. Of course those people exist. She said she's very lucky because on her ward, women who come in who are about to give birth to babies who aren't living, um, they get their separate entrance and they don't have to go through the regular labor ward where there's all the women with their babies and, you know, screaming and, and whatever. And her job is so hidden because you don't get to meet her unless your baby is dying. And the reason she got into it was because when she was a young midwife, she was always terrified of being sent to the side of, of a woman who was, you know, her baby was so premature he wasn't going to live or was so, you know, there was some sort of genetic malfunction so it couldn't breathe outside of the mother, you know, for whatever reason the baby wasn't going to live. And the young midwives were not trained in bereavement counseling or anything. It was just another part of their job, but it's a, it's a speciality. So she said that when she was a very young midwife, she looked after a woman who knew her baby wasn't going to live, but when he was born, he was still breathing. And she said, this woman held onto her baby and she said, Claire, do something. You have to do something. And Claire was young, had no idea what she could do. And she, she said she just panicked and got into a car and she cried and she always remembered that woman. And so years later, when another midwife was putting together a bereavement team and was doing bereavement training, it was there that she learned that she could make the situation better. She couldn't bring the baby back to life, but she could make the situation less horrible for the, the parents and, and she learned how you can create memories with a baby even though they're not going to be around for very long and the fact that this all goes on and we don't know about it like I've had friends who've had miscarriages and I've had friends who've had stillborns and they mention it once and then you really don't know what to say and then they rarely bring it up again you know that they're the sad people and that they've got their own thing going on but no one ever talked about this ward that they went to. And I've had messages from readers saying, this was my experience and I haven't had a way of explaining it to people before. And now I can hand them this chapter and say, this is what I went through. And, you know, as, as a journalist, as a writer, that is an amazing thing to be able to give someone a thing that helps. Because my God, I, I didn't know what to say when my friends went through these things. I'm still not sure I do. But I think I have a greater understanding of what happened. Yeah. I don't know if you can say anything that really does, but presence is really important. And this struck me in the, the chapter with the mass fatality investigator. Another thing I didn't even think of, this big corporation. In, in the book, you talk to somebody who works at Kenyon, but they swoop in basically and do disaster management for airlines that have had planes crashing or, you know, a train runs off the rails 
or there's a mass shooting or a car accident, anything like that, and they, they go in and, and, and handle it. And one of the things that you mention is that, like, a lot of times there's no sense of closure you can get. Like, you can't necessarily hold the dead body. You can't hold your dead baby because it's in limbo. You don't know where it is. And sometimes there isn't a body. You ask at one point, like, what does the presence of a body add to it? Like, why why is that an important thing to consider when we consider death? I think it's an acknowledgement of what has happened. You won't get closure. Um, and that came from a woman. I went to Kenyon's Open Day where they were trying to sell their services because it is a commercial thing. They were trying to sell their services to lots of companies who might have huge disasters in their future. So I was sitting there amongst um, people who worked for airlines or housing associations and lots of places. And they were trying to sell this solution to the bad thing before the bad thing happened. And they had this woman stand up and give a speech. And she uh, she was the, the wife of a plane captain. And the, their plane had gone down and he had died. And she worked within airlines for nearly 30 years as a stewardess. And she was basically begging everyone in that room to please never use the word closure because it's an insurance company word. And she, she said it means nothing because disasters like plane crashes don't end. You never get closure. And so closure isn't what you're getting when you get the body back because the body, you know, in instances like plane crashes, it might be a piece no bigger than an orange. So you're not getting that moment to hold somebody's hand but having the body there, I was told by Mo, who works at Kenyon, he said it's a, a mark on the trail of grief, because grief has all of these various staging posts um, where it becomes real to you. It's, no, it's not just an idea. And if someone's plane goes down and you never find their body, you can invent all of these fantasies in your mind that you know maybe they... <laughs> like in Castaway, maybe they turned up on an island and they're still alive somewhere. Without something tangible that says this happened and you have to deal with it now, it's so open-ended. And researching that chapter, I learned all about Spain, which I didn't, I didn't know this about Spain. Um, so after General Franco's rule, um, they brought in this pact of forgetting which was basically saying everything happened, everything that happened under, under the dictatorship didn't happen. We're, we're just going to forget that. So everybody who was, um, you know, all of the, the streets named in, the, named in their honor stayed, the statues stayed, um, and everyone who was rolled into a mass grave would stay there because digging them up would be literally digging up the past and it was now forbidden by law to do so. And I found there's all of this news about these old ladies who have spent decades trying to track down their dads. Just, you know, it was this thing that through the years they couldn't rest their mums, their dads who had died, you know, by being shot by people and rolled into mass graves and they didn't know where the bodies were. And they were going up to places where they believed the bodies were and leaving flowers, leaving gifts. These were old ladies in their 90s. You know, they could not rest. And um, 
they're slowly now, they've brought in something, I think it's called the Historical Memory Act, where they're undoing that. And now the, the, the government is helping pay for exhumations to try and help find these bodies. And I'm glad that somehow someone has realized just how important it is, because you can't rest. You know, when you don't know, how are you supposed to deal with it emotionally? I think the question of how you deal with it emotionally is one that's important for the person left over from death, you know, the friend or the family or the loved one. Um, but it's also a big question for me for these death workers themselves, because Mo, who is the mass fatality investigator, is still doing his job. I think he was pulled out of retirement to continue doing his job. <laughs> One last job. <laughs> <laughs> He's obviously very good at it and very good at going through it, you know? And he talks about, in your conversation with him, colleagues who didn't, who went to the site of a tsunami in the Philippines and just couldn't really come back and, you know, are still seeing therapists about it you know that just have not been able to go back and do the work and yet he has been um and i think that's true for a number of the people in your book how do these death workers deal with it is there some line they're not willing to go past is the line the same for everyone they all have different lines that they won't cross and i only realized that later on when i was piecing together all of the interviews they all they all have you know, we might call it detachment, but I think it's a healthy kind of detachment where they don't get personally emotionally involved, but they understand the magnitude of what they're dealing with. And the the one guy who had complete detachment and, you know, was very cold about it was the crime scene cleaner. And he had a very different relationship to death. Um, you know, he, he, I, he, I think is an anomaly among the death workers because he wasn't doing anything to help anybody. And I think that had some kind of an effect on him, but everybody had their own you know, lines they wouldn't cross and they were all very specific to their jobs. And, um, you know, there was the, the man who works in the crematorium and who has been burning coffins for 30 years down in the basement. And I was telling him about how I went to Poppy's mortuary and I helped dress this dead man. And I was telling him about it. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I think everyone should do this. And he pulled a face like, ugh. And he said, no, I couldn't do that. It's too spooky. And then, you know, the, the anatomical pathology technologist, they conduct autopsies for the coroner. So they're finding out how a person died. It might be a forensic one. Um, you know, it could be with the babies. It, it's trying to find a reason for why that baby died, um, maybe to prevent that same thing happening in a future pregnancy. Um, so they get notes from the coroner. And sometimes in those notes, if it's a suicide, the suicide note will be included in that report because it's all part of the thing that goes to the inquest later. And they could read that note if they want to. But even though they are inside the person they are intimately acquainted with every part of this person they're literally holding this person's heart the the apts won't read that note because it's too personal it's too close and they don't want to get emotionally involved in this body that they have been put in charge of taking apart and putting back together and i think it's those little blinkers that they put up that um 
that save them from becoming overwhelmed by what it is that they're doing. And I don't think it's a cold detachment. I think it's just, it is saving themselves, but only so that they can better perform their jobs. Because if they were taking on all of the emotions of everybody that came through their workplace, they would crumble. And then we'd have no one left. There is one other outlier in the conversations you had. First was the crime scene cleaner. And then there's the executioner, Jerry, who was the state executioner for Virginia for 17 years and was responsible for ending 62 lives. Can you talk about your conversation with Jerry? Can you talk about your conversation with him and what was different about Jerry's experience? So Jerry, the executioner, I I don't include him in the same category as the death workers that I've spoken to, like the embalmers and the funeral directors. But I've always been interested in the the death team because it's another one of those instances that it's it's something we know happens, but there are workers within that world that we never see on the news. You know, the executioner is anonymous, mostly. In, in old movies, they wear a black hood. And the fact, you know, this is going on and someone has to come in and do that job and then go home and live their lives. And so I thought, I have to talk to an executioner. When am I ever going to get to talk to an executioner before? And I found Jerry. Do you remember years ago there was that, um, I think, was it in Arkansas? They were going to rush through more executions than usual because the lethal injection drugs were about to go past their use-by date. And they're like, well, we got to use this up. It was horrifying. And I found Jerry's name at the bottom of a letter that various death team workers, so people who'd worked in prisons like wardens and chaplains, they wrote this letter to the governor of Arkansas, basically begging him, saying, please don't put the workers through this, because there is the, the mental pressure that an execution puts on the team is unbelievable just for one execution. And you're suggesting, what was it, 11 or something like that? It was, it was an, a crazy number in that one short time. And I found Jerry's name at the bottom of it, and it said Jerry Gibbons, executioner. And no one else was listed as executioner, it was all wardens. And also traditionally executioners are anonymous. So I thought, why is this guy putting his name to this job? What happened? So I found him through the Virginia group that was campaigning for the abolition of the the death penalty. And they put me in touch and I went to Virginia to meet him and have dinner with him. And it was one of the strangest experiences because I really didn't know what to expect. And what I found when I got there was just this sweet old man. We went to Red Lobster and I was, I was just trying to talk to him about how do you do this job? How do you end 62 lives and then go home at the end of the night? And it was a really frustrating interview because nothing made sense chronologically. He had found God and found religion, but it seemed to be after the point where he was doing the executions. Like he had retroactively put an explanation on how he handled doing the executions with this new thing, you know, this new thing, it's God put me in that position. If you want to, he said, if you really want to know why I was chosen, you got to talk to God. Everything was put onto God. And I was like, but I'm asking you, how did you feel about it? 
It really didn't make any sense. But there were little flashes where I saw, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but there were little flashes where I thought, you are a traumatized man. Because he said, on the morning of an execution, he was fine, he could eat breakfast, that was no trouble. But he wouldn't look at himself in the mirror, because he didn't want to see himself as the executioner. And also, for the entire time he held that position, he never told his wife, because he didn't want her to take on the enormity of this job that he was carrying out. So there was a lot of denial and a lot of avoidance um, with a, a topping of Jesus. He was a complicated guy, but I think if you're doing that job, like however you fix that in your mind is going to be a tangle. I really don't know how he did it. And I'm not sure if he did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of the, the change in your sort of thinking and perspective on death in the book is a very, like, visceral, emotional one. But I was also struck by your conversation um, with the embalmer and your experience of the embalming process, because that also changed your perspective a little bit on it. I came, I think embalming is the one, the one chapter I came in with preconceived notions that I was like, convince me otherwise. Um, with everything else, I went in open hearted, but with embalming, I will admit that I came in having read The American Way of Death. And I think Jessica Mitford is very funny, but her, uh, her book, if you haven't read it, it's, it's quite bitchy and it's, um, I support what she was doing completely. She was going, she believed that the American funeral industry is preying on the vulnerable, squeezing every penny they can get out of them. And they are, you know. Um, so I had Jessica Mitford in my head and I had Caitlin Doty who wrote Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. And both of them were kind of advocating for less of the money squeezing and more of the personal uh, ceremony that's not based on giving the funeral industry every cent you have. So I went into this going, embalming is pointless. It's just something so that they can charge you for it. And I met this retired funeral director from Wisconsin called Ron Troyer, very sweet man. And he knew how I felt about embalming because I'd written in Wired magazine about um, a process called water cremation. And in that, in that article, I had described the process of embalming as violent. And I had al also written about how once a body is buried, an embalmed body, you're basically putting all of the chemicals you just put in that body into the groundwater. And I just didn't think any of this was worth it. And so I spent so long talking to Ron about this. He was telling me about his his career as a funeral director who embalmed. He embalmed both of his parents. And he told me so many stories about how he had gone above and beyond to make sure that family members got the moment they needed with the body, or he was there when they needed them. Like there was a funeral for a, a young girl, a teenager who'd been in a car accident, and he went to her school and asked the principal to please let her classmates come to the funeral. And he explained that this was a mark on the trail of grief. They needed to be there and be present and to see. And, and 
Also, he told me the story about how during the AIDS crisis in the 80s, when all of the funeral homes were rejecting the AIDS bodies, he was taking them in, and he was not only taking them in, but he was, you know, there might be uh, disagreements, we can call them within families who didn't want the the dead person's friends and lovers to be there at the funeral. So Ron would stay late at his funeral home and he would sneak them in so that they could say their goodbyes when the family wouldn't allow it. And all of this, it, you know, I ended up in tears talking to Ron because all of this is going way above what he's supposed to be doing. And he could have gotten trouble for sneaking people in, but he did it. So and he was telling me that embalming wasn't what I thought it was. So I thought, okay, I got to go and see it. And he didn't do it anymore. So he told me, go find someone who will show you. And it took me ages to find somebody. I was, <laughs> I felt like a creep emailing every embalmer on the internet that I could find in England. And um, eventually I found one who would talk to me and he, you know, all embalmers treat you with suspicion. And I think it's because of how they've been treated in the media. The way death is written about in, in newspapers, it winds me up. But I've also been on the receiving end of edits that want me to make things more spooky. And I had to convince them that I wasn't going to write anything like that. And I eventually got to see the, the process of embalming. And it is to watch, you know, there is an element of stabbing. But <laughs> It's kind of like a blood transfusion. It was like a Benjamin Button thing. I was watching this skeletal old man being pumped up and coming back to life, like pink was coming back into his hands and his face. And he had been shrunken by cancer. It really is just astonishing what cancer does to a body. And over the process of, I think it was maybe 45 minutes, he went from this old shriveled man to this pink lifelike, I think he was in his fifties. He was definitely a lot younger than I had thought he was when I had walked into the room. And it is astonishing. And there was part of me thinking, sure, that is a magic trick that you've just performed with some pink liquid, but is it helpful if someone you love died of cancer and, and you watched them die? You know, you saw them becoming sicker and more shriveled. If you go and visit them, you know, before the funeral in the chapel of rest or in America in an open coffin, and you see them reversed into life, is that, is that helpful to you? Cause I don't think it would be helpful to me. But talking to the embalmer, he was telling me various points of, you know, where families had thanked him for giving the person back to them because they had been in accidents where their faces had been smashed up or, you know, something horrible had happened to them. And it was so shocking that they wouldn't be able to be with the body and visit the body and, and see them without, you know, being too shocked by the, the physical sight of them, that they wouldn't be able to have that moment. And his work allowed them to be there and to focus on their grief and their memories without that getting in the way. So I came away from that. I'm not pro-embalming, but I understand why it exists. We've talked about how the process of writing this book changed 
your perspective about death and deepened it in certain ways. What do you think now needs to change about the way society handles death? Well, I think everyone should be given the options of what they can do. Not, you know, people have come up to me, even celebrants, funeral celebrants, and they've said, I didn't know that you could be there at the crematorium and watch the coffin burn. Like all of the experiences I've had, bar the autopsy, are available to you. You know, you can be that. Don't, don't be there in the embalming room, but you can be there. You can dress them. You can be there with the grave diggers who bury them. You can go to the crematorium and you can push the coffin in. Um, a friend of mine, uh, she killed herself four years ago. And I got a message from her mum who had seen me talking about death somewhere. And she said, um, when Gemma died, everybody told her not to go and see the body because it would just upset her. And they treated her like she was weird because she wanted to be there. And she said she did it anyway, even though everyone was trying to talk her out of it. And she said she's so glad she did that it was this transformative moment. And and now she's like me. She's telling other people, you know, if, if somebody in your family dies, you have to go and be with them. And it, I think that you know, people don't do these things because they are afraid. But what kind of mess are we in where we're talking a grieving mother out of seeing her daughter for the last time? That That to me is crazy. And right now, like, with COVID and everything happening, that whole thing about being there with the body and having the funeral and the, the staging posts of, of grief and seeing and being there, all of that was in a state of upheaval. And the fact that so many people ha weren't able to have those moments, I think really highlights how important they are, because I think we are in the midst of a mental health thing that maybe we won't see the repercussions of for years. The fact that, you know, people, people are trying to make memorials for COVID victims. You know, we've got a thing along the Thames where there are love hearts with names in them. It goes for like a mile. Um, you know, there are places with white flags and things, but it's this fluid moving memorial because people are still dying and all the while, our governments are pretending it's not really happening anymore and it's over. That is compounding the grief and the anger and the disbelief. And I think that's a huge problem. I'm still in touch with everybody I was, I spoke to in the book. And while I was seeing people, even people I know on the internet saying this is all being blown out of proportion. I don't know anyone who's had it. I don't know. I don't know anyone who's died. I was speaking to Lara, who's the the girl who does the autopsies in the hospital, and she was being put up in a, a hotel across the road from the hospital because she was on call at all times. And I had friends whose funeral homes were overwhelmed with bodies, but we didn't see them. And again, it's the seeing that I think is so important. And it was, and so you got all of this nonsense. You got all of the disbelief and the anger and the, the protests. And if you spoke to the death workers, you could see what was happening and that it was huge. We have links in the show notes to Haley Campbell's new book, 
All the Living and the Dead, from embalmers to executioners, an exploration of the people who have made death their life's work. You can also find links to your nearest death cafe and the Order of the Good Death, one of whose founders, Caitlin Doty, spoke to us a couple years ago about funerary practices around the world. That's linked, too. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.